Well, I should probably make note for those of you all geared up for Seahawks. This is a no spoiler zone here, so uh, welcome TiVo users. And uh, th there's a serious consequence for spoiling the score. Uh, we're not a particularly charismatic church, so like if there's a spontaneous amen in the middle, uh, I know that you're checking the score, okay? So um, <clears throat> Old Testament discipline will follow. All right. Well, we want to talk a little bit about purpose, and uh, we sing a song around here in worship that goes like this. You and I were made for worship. Kind of declaring it so baldly like that. That's our purpose. Which, by the way, reminds me of something. Maybe a lot of us in the evangelical tradition have never read the Anglican Common Book of Prayer, but it asks the question, what is the chief end of man? And it provides us the answer, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Purpose. Now, when I say it like that, and we talk so, you know, so simply that that could wrap it up, that's our purpose as human beings that might disturb us. You know, isn't that religious overstatement? Maybe that's, you know, poetic hyperbole, that sort of thing. Seriously, made for worship, that sums it up. And for those of you who had trouble with, you know, just, you know, music isn't your favorite thing, singing together in public isn't like your favorite thing, some of you maybe seriously hoping that you weren't made for an unending chorus of Michael W. Smith's friends are friends forever, you know, sung on clouds in the sky forever and ever. You know, you just, that doesn't appeal to you as your purpose. Well, if that's not it, what am I here for? Let's back up, back up. What's your purpose? Let's get past simple answers, right, to live, breathe, procreate. Let's get past selfish answers, like to have fun, to experience as much as I can, to experience as much pleasure as I can, to diminish as much pain as I can. We should also get past ambitious answers, like uh, to build all I can, to do all I can, to achieve all I can. What are you here for? We should even probably get past altruistic answers, as nice as they sound, to leave the world a better place than I found it, right? I mean, we, we got to get past all that, don't we, to really get at the, the nut of it? What is our purpose? Do we even have a purpose? Let's back even farther than that. I mean, because really, if you look at the secular world today, the, um, the assumption is simply this, that science has revealed that the universe has no purpose. That's what's being told to you. Institutions of higher learning will tell you that fundamentally, at the root of reality, simply atoms in motion, so that there can be no purpose in atoms following the dictates of natural law. But what does science really say? Well, you, you, you look a little bit deeper into this thing, and, and the picture's not quite so simple. British astrophysicist Paul Davies, not a Christian, but he has this to say about the study of the natural world. He says, there is, for me, powerful evidence that there is something going on behind it all. Again, this guy's not a Christian. It seems as though somebody has fine-tuned nature's numbers to make the universe. The impression of design is overwhelming. The laws of physics seem to be the product of exceedingly ingenious design. The universe must have a purpose. So you don't have to look to the Bible, friends, to realize that you've got a purpose. You can just look to the universe to realize that you were made. That means if the universe has a purpose, that means you have a purpose. That means you were created. That means you were invented. Have you ever thought of it that way? I mean, just, you know... We like to use the words, a high and lofty and beautiful word, you're created. But think about it differently. Say, I was invented. 
That puts a bit of a different spin on it, doesn't it? Because we understand invention, doesn't it? And you know that anybody who invents something always has a purpose for that invention. Well, you were invented. So what's your purpose? I mean, if you believe that you were invented, surely you don't believe that you were just invented for your own sake, right? Those of us who are parents in this room, you don't just want your kid to do or to be anything at all, right? You have some specific purpose for them, surely. Of course, some people try to convince themselves that they're so open-minded, they have no such purposes or designs on their children's lives. Oh, it doesn't matter to me what Susie does or is, so long as she's happy. Really? Really? Seriously? What if she wants to be a prostitute? What if she wants to join ISIS? You know, then we realize that, yes, every parent has a purpose for their kid. And so does God. God has purpose. And the purpose of God in making us is probably summarized most beautifully in the very first page of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, we read, So God created humans in his image. In the image of God, he created them. He created the male and female. Now, among other things, what that is so powerfully saying to us today, friends, is that there is nothing so godlike in the created world as you. <laughs> Whoa. You. You look around the created world, and the, most, the thing that re most reflects God in this world is the human soul. We can look around earth, we can see a lot of things that reflect God. And I look around the natural world, and more and more these days, I'm beginning to see God expressed in everything, in every animal, in everything that God's made and everything that God made in uh, extraterrestrially, it's a beautiful reflection of God. But nothing reflects God in the created world so much as the human soul. That's what this means. You reflect God. Which begs the question, why did God make us so much like himself? Well, the Bible gives us the answer. And the prophet will say it like this. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 21. The people I formed for myself my purpose, my people, my invention, will declare my praise. Will declare my praise. You were made for worship. And it'll say it again, Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things. Why? And for thy pleasure they are and were created. You were made for God, and you were made for worship. A.W. Tozer, great Christian writer, of the last century. And by the way, if you want to read something to go along with all the messages this, this whole month, you can read Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Stolzer. It's kind of a beautiful summary of all God's beautiful attributes in worship. He says, the reason God made man in his image was so that he might appreciate God and admire and adore and worship. So that God might not be a picture, so to speak, hanging in a gallery with nobody looking at him. He might not be a flower that no one could smell. He might not be a star that no one could see. God made somebody to smell that flower, the lily of the valley. He wanted someone to see that glorious image. He wanted someone to see the star. So he made us, and in making us, he made us to worship him. And so the Bible will say that all of life, your entire purpose, summarized in this one word, to glorify God, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, that God in all things may be glorified. So the glory of God ought to be the golden thread, AC3, that is running through everything you say and everything you do and every ambition that you have, not just when you're singing, but your entire life. And so the Bible says say it like this, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, therefore, whatever you do, 
whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So you were made not for your glory, you were made for God's glory. That's shocking a little bit to the senses. And somehow we tend to think, oh, that's so egocentric of God to make that to be our purpose, you know? That we should look and laud and honor and praise Him, but understand this is the best thing for you because when you live for the glory of God, your life comes into alignment with what you were made to be and you get to share in that glory. That's awesome. That's awesome. And that's good for you. You were made for it. You were made for that humbling and, yes, also pleasurable sense of admiring awe and astonished wonder and overpowering love that comes to you in the presence of the ancient mystery. The Almighty, you were made for that. You were made for that. There's a problem, though. The Bible tells us something else. We were derailed. From this purpose. We fell. We failed to serve our created purpose, to give God glory, to live for his praise and honor, to worship. And it's been going on so long now that it actually probably seems a little bit weird. It hits us weird for the preacher to say, you know, you were made for God's purposes and not yours. I mean, that just seems a little strange in our age of such self-sufficiency uh, and self-containment that you should actually be made for another the purpose for another. But that was your purpose. But we fell. We forfeited that purpose. So what did God do? He sent the Son. The Father sends the Son. Now why? Well, this is where I'm a little disturbed. Some Bible teachers, you listen to them talk about the purpose of, of Christ, the purpose of Christianity, and it sounds so egocentric. And I'm a little disturbed by that. that. As if the Father sent the Son to be your personal account manager. The Father sent the Son to enhance your personal stock portfolio. The Father sent the Son to be your personal psychologist. The Father sent the Son even to be your personal rescue helicopter to lift you out of the dangers of hell. I mean, yes, it's certainly true that in Jesus, the nugget that you realize is he gives us power to walk in a new kind of life. There's no question. That through the Son, we have the guidance that we need for life's great decisions, even for our relationships. That through the Son, we have character transformation and certainly hope for eternal life. All that's true, and Jesus comes and, and reorganizes all that stuff. But fundamentally, AC3, fundamentally, Jesus come to restore you to your original purpose, which is what? To glorify God and enjoy Him. He's come to marry you again to what you were originally designed for, to be a worshiper, to be a worshiper. The reason Jesus comes and the reason that he forgives your sins and the reason he restores you back to God is to give you back the reason that you were made. And so in one sense, friend, every Christian conversion is simply a Copernican revolution of the soul. We know what Copernicus did, right? He comes along and says, hey, you know what? I don't think that everything revolves around the earth. Actually, I think everything in the solar system revolves around the sun. And Christian conversion is kind of at a fundamental level. You could call it many things, repentance and faith and grace and forgiveness of sin, the whole thing. But fundamentally, there's a Copernican revolution that happens in every soul that comes into faith in Jesus Christ. They get off self-centered 
and move into God-centered living. And they just re-realize, this is my purpose. And through Christ, it's given to them, bequeathed as a gift, to re-enter into their purpose, why they were made to be But Jesus didn't come simply that we might worship generically, blandly, you know, sort of in a, uh, in, a, in a generic sort of way that anyone could. Because we said last week, right, that all seven billion humans through even the created order can apprehend something of God. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, 19, 20, make that pretty clear, right? That it's the position of Christianity that that God reveals himself through his created order. Worship is something more than that. Christian worship is something more special than that because Jesus said, in him, a time has come when, and now I'm quoting John chapter 4, verse 23, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Yes, he says, the Father wants such people to worship him. See, that's something more than just generic appreciation for God. Because we all know somebody, right? The neo-pagan in your life. And maybe you would even describe yourself this way. You're investigating here this morning. It's kind of like you're, you're in the mode of being a spiritual person. And you can apprehend God from, you know, the rocks and the trees and, and on a moonlit night walking across a meadow after rain. You taking a deep breath through the nostrils or you see the sun set behind majestic mountains. You have a sense of God. I don't deny it. No, I won't deny it. Not for a second that you are having an actual worship experience, that you are, you are experiencing God. The Bible says that's clearly within the capacity of every person made in the image of God. Ralph Waldo Emerson, great playwright and poet of the last century, no Christian man to be sure, but he had enormous uh, respect for what he sensed, the awe that he sensed in nature, and he said, I could come into nature and become, quote, glad to the point of fear. Every human has the capacity for that. To apprehend some, some generic sense of God, some sense of the divine or purpose. Paul Davies, our, our physicist, astrophysicist. Well, when Jesus comes to restore you, to restore your purpose as a true worshiper, he's saying you're made for something more than that. He's saying that acceptable worship is worshiping in spirit and in truth. And that's telling you something. It's going to sound really arrogant, but it's Jesus so I got to just tell it to you faithfully. I'm a Bible teacher. Jesus said Christian worship is unique. Christian worship is a special thing. It's a unique thing. It's a thing that can only be enabled by God's spirit, reviving your spirit supernaturally through the new birth experience in conjunction with the truth of the Christian gospel, which makes all that possible. That's what he said. By the way, that hopefully explains to you why we do something the way we do it strangely here at AC3, which is we have a service, but then we set aside a very specific and extended worship time as like an elective. So you can come to a service at AC3 and the pastor says amen at the end, and then it's up to you whether you want to enter into the Christian worship environment, whether you want to um, worship in spirit and in truth because it's special. It is a spiritual communion built on the truth of the Christian faith. So Christian worship is a very special thing. That's why we're talking, by the way, that's why we're taking two weeks to talk about who it is that we worship because we want to worship in the truth about who God is. Jesus is saying that there's a bit of acceptable worship that isn't acceptable until we accept what God says about himself. 
And last week we realized what God says about himself are all these big omnis, right? Omnipotent and omnipresent. He's everywhere and he's powerful and he's holy and he's other and he's transcendent. But this week there's a whole other set of attributes. This is what God says about himself that describe his imminence, which is a fancy word that means his closeness, his availability, his accessibility. And we can kind of summarize all of that part of God in a word. And the Apostle John will say it like this in 1 John chapter 4, 16. God is love. Now, what does that mean exactly? Well, I'll tell you, some of us want to flip that a little bit in our day and age. Say, yeah, sure. And again, getting back to generic worship and say, well, you know, love is really, really important. Love is the bomb. You know, uh, love is all we need and all that jazz. But then we wind up doing a little flip. And instead of saying what the Bible says, which is God is love, we wind up saying love is God, right? And we wind up sort of worshiping this emotion instead of worshiping the person from whom this whole thing comes. And what happens when you flip that around and you say love is God is we wind up worshiping and setting up as an idol our very subjective ideas of what love is. And you talk to people these days and they're doing some things that are deeply antithetical to Christian moral behavior. And they're saying they're doing it out of love. But God says there's no loving way to do X, Y, or Z. And so therefore, we cannot flip this thing around without incredible idolatry going on. No, love is not God. God is love. Love is good because it flows out of the all-loving character of God. And we need to recognize that if we're going to worship in truth. Now, love is an enormous idea. So let's break it down into three different attributes this morning, okay? And with the rest of our time, that's what we'll do. The love and the eminence of God can be described in three different attributes that break down like this. Number one, the goodness of God. God's love is first seen in his goodness. And this goodness is indiscriminate, by the way, of who you are or what you've done. Jesus will say it like this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Why? Because he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He said, this is what God is like. He sends his rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So love your enemies, Jesus says, because that's what God is like. And maybe you never believed that about God before, but Jesus reveals this is what the Father is like. His heart is to do good even to his enemies. He sends on them indiscriminately the rain and the sunshine. God has a will to bless. God is good. God is good. I know the plans I have for you going back 500 years to the prophet Jeremiah this is what the Lord says I have plans to prosper you and not to harm you plans to give you hope and a future God is good by goodness God secures also that which he loves John says first John chapter 14 perfect love drives out fear this is his goodness to you to want to secure you in his love now think about that for just a second let's camp here so God is so good, he wants to secure you in love that you would never fear again. And think of all the ways that we're afraid. Anxiety, fear. Worry, that's fear. And Jesus has come to abolish that in you. Show me a man who believes down to his marrow that he cannot die, and I will show you a bold and fearless man. These two things are connected. Your sense of vulnerability is connected to your fear. And God, by his goodness, has come to make you invulnerable. You know, there's people who live like that. 
They live as if they're invulnerable. And we consider them nut jobs. They're called teenagers. <laughs> teenagers uh, feel completely invulnerable, probably mostly because nothing bad has happened to them yet. But because they feel so invincible, they are fearless. And the dumb ones will try anything. Jump off buildings, play with fire, jumping off bridges into raging rivers, uh, driving too fast. Let's see, what else did I do? There's a, a, lot of, a lot of crazy stuff. Pain will someday restrain them. But you see, God in his goodness wishes to make you feel that way spiritually. The way you felt when you were 16 and you were invulnerable, he wants you to feel that way spiritually all the time. Invulnerable. Immune to true, lasting, eternal harm. And you show me someone like that, and I will show you someone who lives boldly and fearlessly. Well, it's by God's goodness he wants to secure you in love. He wants to secure you in love because he's good. Oh, but that's so hard for some of us to accept because pain has trained you out of this truth. Pain has made you stop believing that God is good, that God is good all the time, all the time. Suffering has numbed you to the truth of his imminence, his closeness, his goodness. But he's good, my friend. He's good. And because he's good, he also rejoices over you. He delights in what he loves. That's also another part of his goodness, is he delights in that which he loves. And that's you. Did you know that? Maybe you didn't know that say, well, Rick, I spent too much time in the Old Testament. Listen, can we, can we blow something away right now? The Old Testament, wrathful God, New Testament, loving God, can we just blow that away and maybe this will help? Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. Dead in the heart of the Old Testament, the prophet says, for the Lord your God has arrived to live among you. He is a mighty Savior. He rejoice over you with great gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will exult over you by singing a happy song. Now I want you just to imagine God singing over you. Singing over you. Spontaneous, exultant song because he delights in Oh man, last Sunday at about 1.30 Pacific Standard Time, there was some spontaneous exaltation, wasn't there? All across the Pacific Northwest, a great sigh of relief because grace poured down on the football fans of this uh, Seahawk nation. Well, friends, in the same way, God exalts spontaneously over that which he has made in his own image. This is the all-loving God, a God who is good, whose will towards you is good, his heart towards you is to secure you. He rejoices over you with a song of joy. No wonder some of you have never entered the worship circle. Always standing just a little bit outside, just a little bit aloof from the entire thing because you've never said, this is what God is like. You've never believed it, not down to your marrow. 
Maybe today you'd open up your heart to the Holy Spirit who would convince you today that God is good and he's good all the time. His heart towards you is to bless you and give you a hope, a future. But he's also merciful. It's another part of God's love is that God is merciful. Goodness is a will to work towards your advantage. He has that about you. But mercy is the pity God has for us who don't deserve it. Mercy is his love showing up for our helplessness. Mercy is God's love when it confronts need and when it confronts guilt. Why is that necessary? Because God doesn't just look down at his creation and just see a bunch of perfectly happy creatures and all they need is a little leg up here or here. No, he sees you laboring. He sees laborers who labor with a heavy yoke on their back and who have earned by their labor separation from God. That's what he sees. He sees laborers. So brothers and sisters, it is in the character of God to be merciful to all who labor in this way. But not out of effect how you worship. That just ought to affect how you worship. Jesus reflects this, right? He reflects this quality of love, this merciful peace of God's eminence in Matthew chapter 18, verse 27, when he tells a story of a servant. And the servant happens to have a, a debt with, a, with his master. The master represents God in the story. And the debt is an unpayable debt. And listen to what God, Jesus says. The servant's master took pity on him, that's mercy, canceled the debt, and let him go. That's how he looks at you. He looks at you with pity. He sees your plight. He empathizes. God comes to Moses in the burning bush and he says, I have seen the suffering of my people and I have mercy on them. His pity on his people. And the greatest act of empathy is his incarnation. Jesus becoming flesh, the ultimate expression of God's mercy because it was only in Christ that God saw our lowliest state. He reaches across the universe to stay the executioner's hand of judgment that the law was bound to bring on your head and mine. Mercy. All we have to do is call out for it. That's all we have to do is call out for this mercy and there will be ready help. That's the truth of the God that we worship. He looks at our situation of sin and he does not uh, look with disgust. He looks with pity. He looks on us with pity. You know, it's fascinating, in Mark's gospel, all the three, uh, three different synoptic gospels give us just a different, interesting little look on Jesus. And one of the most interesting and what seems to be a first-hand eyewitness account of Jesus is this little detail that Mark includes. Four times in his gospel, Jesus is confronted by somebody, and Mark doesn't note, he doesn't record what he said. He records what he looks like. Isn't that amazing? Go back, read it. He's confronted by a dude, and Mark will say, and he looked at him with compassion. Doesn't say a word. It was just noted by people. They looked at him, son of God, and they said, look how he's looking at us. Look how he looks at us. He looks at us with mercy. And so people, all they had to do to tap into that was call out for it. Have mercy on me. And it became the most beautiful and simplest of all prayers. 1985 was the year of my graduation, and so as you can imagine, it was also the apex of Western culture. 
And so uh, you remember, don't you, uh, back in those days, a legendary song from that legendary musical era sung by that legendary band, Mr. Mister. The song was Kiri Eleison, and it has that phrase repeated over and over in the chorus. Kiri Eleison, down the road that I must travel. Kiri Eleison, through the darkness of the Nahahai. It's really cool. Awesome song. Well, a really catchy tune, but most people don't know what it means. What does this mean, Kiri Eleison? Way back, and this was back before Dan understood uh, a lot of Christian prayers and liturgy, I, I said, I asked Dan, the resident music expert, I said, did you ever hear that song? Of course I did. He said, did you know what it meant? And he said, no, I think, I thought it, they were singing the name of a girl, Kyrie Eleison. Well, I said, it's not the name of a girl, Kyrie Eleison. It's a Greek phrase. It's ripped right out of the New Testament. It is the simplest and most beautiful of all prayers. It is simply, Lord, have mercy. Kyrie Eleison. Lord, have mercy. When the tax collector comes into the synagogue and is overwhelmed by shame, he beats his breast and says this prayer. Lord, have mercy. When two blind men heard that Jesus was passing by, Matthew chapter 20, verse 31, the apostle records that this was their simple prayer. Lord, have mercy. Kyrie Eleison. Lord, have mercy. Now, it's interesting. The crowd rebuked them, tried to shut them up, like, stop it. But understand, when you know this is true about God, that God is merciful, you don't shut up about this. You cry out. And you cry out simply and boldly, Kiri, Elisa, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. This is the simple and most beautiful prayer, and they're so bold because they understand that this is true about God. And Jesus, I love this, he turns to them. He just blows by everybody. He says, shut up. Blows by all those guys. Blows through the crowd, goes right to them and says, And imagine God says that to you in mercy. What do you want me to do for you? This is what God is like. We come to seek him in true worship. Here's a third thing, and finally, the grace of God. So God is good, and he is merciful, and he is also gracious. If the mercy of God is sort of like the passive pity that God has for our desperate situation, then grace is more active. Grace is the act of giving us of things that we don't deserve. The force of the biblical word for grace is always about undeserved favor. It's about a gift. So, mercy suspends judgment for those deserving it. Grace goes above that and lavishes a gift on the undeserving. Grace is just how God is, ACC. It's inherent in his nature. It's who God is. And it's his love in action. For God so loved the world that he gave. While we were still sinners, the Bible says, Christ died for us. It's his love doing stuff. Now, Scripture never disassociates grace from blood sacrifice. Why is that? Because God is one. And he cannot sever his justice from his grace. And this is what we like to do. We like to compartmentalize God. We say, well, he was holy back then and he's loving now or something like that. Or we, you know, uh, or we like to diminish or, or uh, move away from ourselves this idea of God's uh, perfection or his moral purity or his omnipotence or that sort of thing and just really center in on the mercy of God. Well, listen, understand something. ACG. All these things are all God all the time. His justice never uh, is enacted without his mercy back behind it. And he never has grace for us ignoring his justice. That's why the cross is a smash-up of justice 
and mercy. That's God. That's all of God. He brought all of himself to the party. And so that's just who God is. And that's why grace is never uh, found in the New Testament apart from God's crucified son, Romans 3.23. For all have sinned, Paul says, and fall short of the glory of God, keep reading, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, the bleeding son is the picture of God's justice and mercy. See, God is not Old Testament justice, New Testament grace. God is just gracious. He doesn't wake up in a forgiving mood. He doesn't have like sort of a fit of grace that just comes upon him one day and he's feeling good about you that day. That's just who he is all the time. All the time. And even we see in the Old Testament then that no one was ever saved apart from grace. It wasn't like he just said, you know, I've tried the justice thing. I think I'm going to try grace now. You totally misunderstand your Bible if that's the way you read it. Adam and Eve were saved by grace. They were kicked out of the garden, right? And then they tried to clothe themselves in what? Fig leaves. I went to the Holy Land for the, you know, uh, back in 2009, and for the first time I felt a fig leaf, and I thought, if I clothe myself in this, it would be like wearing sandpaper. Not a good idea. So what does God do? God clothes them in animal skin. Some of you haven't read that far into the story. You just read about the snake and the deception and that whole thing. Keep reading. They're saved by grace. He clothes them. This beautiful picture, I'm covering your shame, covering your nakedness. It's a beautiful softness of an animal. But what has to happen for God to get that done? Something has to die. An animal has to die. Blood has to be spilled so that a gift can be given to an undeserving party. Why? Because God is gracious. That's who he is. That's just who he is. We sung it earlier. That's who you are. That's just who you are. That's who God is. And so that's why the Bible says the Lamb of God was slain from the, before the foundation of the world. God's just always been gracious. So now you come to worship and... Um, well, this is who God is. This is truth, and it ought to inform you. But I just, you know, words fail me here. So I get to the place where I can't do any more to describe for you this is who God is. I just know this, friends. We come to this moment where I say, look, if God is this imminent, this loving, this good, this merciful, and this gracious, there's one huge implication for you and me as you develop as a worshiper. And that big implication is simply that you should be bold. You should be bold. The apostle will say it like this, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. As a worshiper, friends, hanging back is just dumb because you're not worshiping the truth about who God is. So you come to worship, you bring your needs, you bring yourself just as you are. So, how big is your need? Bring it. Imagine you could put it on a scale and weigh it. Say, this is the size of my shame. This is the size of my need. This is the size of my question. This is the size of my sin. And you could measure it. It would be big, hey? It would be big. But it would be finite. It would be finite. But the grace of God to handle all that comes from an infinite God. So any attribute that an infinite God has is infinite. 
And so the grace to handle that finite supply of need is infinite. And so Paul will say it like this. It's beautiful. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. For where sin increased, pile gets bigger, but it's a finite pile. Grace increased all the more. That's, by the way, one word in Greek. Sin increased. One word. Grace increased all the more. One word. Hyperabound. You'd laugh if you saw it. The prefix in Greek is simply superabounded. Grace superabounded because it's the grace that flows out of infinity. It's the sin that flows out of your finite self. So wherever your need is, you bring it. It abounds, yes, it's got a big old pot. But grace abounds all the more. Super abounds. So brother or sister, please raise your discouraged head, look up, it's God. And you see living God in the image of Jesus, the bleeding Christ. I want you to see him there in the image of Jesus as you're going to see powerfully illustrated for us in just one minute. See him there. His heart towards you is good. His his action is to stoop down towards you in mercy. And for your need, his grace super abounds. God, may we see you. May we see you as you are. Not as we fear you to be like, not as we want you to be like, as you are. And in seeing you as you are, we will come again into our purpose to magnify you and praise you and worship you. Because who you are is beautiful. You are good. You are merciful. And you are gracious. And we see this reflected to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. We come to you through him.